1: Those words are in Scripture countless times. Often, when the angel of the Lord appears and people realize they're standing in the presence of God, they fall on their faces in fear that their lives are going to be taken because they've seen God. Be not afraid. Jesus mentions this in the Gospels countless times to his disciples and to those who see these miraculous wonders that he does. Question I have for you this morning is, What are you afraid of? We all have fears, and some of you who claim to not have fears, I'm sure deep down somewhere, you either had fears in your past or you still have fears you just don't want to admit out loud. Um, The British... um, Journal of Psychiatry actually has these lists of fears that are fairly common to most people. And uh, tell me if you have some of these fears. So the first one is uh, that, that I have on my list is acrophobia. How many of you have acrophobia? If you had it, you probably would know what it is. It's a fear of heights. Right, so how many of you have fear of heights? Just a couple of you. Aerophobia, like aeroplane, fear of flying. Uh, Arachnophobia, you remember the movie back, it was back in my day. Arachnophobia, it's where spiders come out of the sink and every hole and crevice of the walls and all of that stuff. It's actually an old movie. If you want to watch it, it's, it's really a creeper. I actually have arachnophobia. I hate spiders, and I probably shouldn't have admitted that out loud because of last week when I was pranked by a shirt. Astrophobia. You know what that is? Fear of thunder and lightning. My dog has that. Let's see, Autophobia. Fear of being alone, autophobia. Uh, claustrophobia. How many of you have heard of that? A couple of you. How many of you have claustrophobia? Fear of enclosed or tight spaces. Yes. Uh, if you had a, uh, you know, one of those CAT scans or MRIs. Yeah. <laughs> not not fun. All right. Hemophobia. Fear of blood. How many of you have fear of blood, Sara I'm just kidding it's just the thought of blood okay all right let me go to some examples of more unusual phobias how, about, how many of you have electrophobia not electrophobia electrophobia fear of chickens <laughs> if you're a farmer this is not a good fear to have how about uh <laughs> this is good onomatophobia like onomatopoeia Onomatophobia is the fear of names. So I don't know what this person that has a fear of names does if they have a name. I guess they just go by the person whose name shall not be mentioned. Oh, that sounds like Harry Potter, and I probably shouldn't mention that. Sorry. This is a Christian group. Anyway, um, uh, here's one I'll close. Uh, I won't go on anymore because I have several more, but I just won't do it. Um, Paganophobia. In Western Pennsylvania, this doesn't go over well. It's a fear of beards. Not beer, beards, beards. We all have fears of many different shapes and sizes. And I told my class this morning that I was teaching, one of my fears actually reson- or originates when I was probably around seven or eight years old. When um, my family and I stopped going to Florida for vacations, uh, my dad decided to buy a boat. And we went to a place in central Kentucky in a, in a town called Bergen, which is actually where my family ended up moving to when I was nine years old. Uh, and in in this place is, is a lake that's about 32, 33 miles long. At its w- widest, it's maybe 150, 175 feet across. And, and it is a super deep lake. It's actually a dammed up river that uh, powers a uh, hydroelectric power plant where the dam is. That's where my dad worked. And uh, so the earliest memories that I have, other than Florida, of vacation times or on the weekends is we'd go to Harrington Lake, which is what this lake was, and we would go swimming. And I love to swim. Every kid, I think, for the most part, loves to swim. Not all kids have a fear of water. Uh, We just have a fear of drowning. So, but we love to swim. And I remember swimming in this lake. And this lake is one of the murkiest, greenest water lakes you'll ever see. I had the fear of not knowing what was around me in the lake. Because you couldn't, if you went under the water and looked, you couldn't really see your hand in front of your face. It was that murky. And so I don't like not knowing what's under me or around me. Uh, And when something brushes up next to you, it freaks you out a little bit. One of my jobs as a kid was to, to uh, one of my chores when I got home from school off the bus, I was a latchkey kid. So I got home, had two hours every day before mom and dad got there and what glorious fun that was. But if I didn't get my chores done, my dad would know it and I would get in big trouble. One of my chores was letting the boat dock in and out. So hydroelectric plant draws the water for purposes of generating electricity, so the fluctuation of the lake was constantly happening. So we had these spools at the top of the hill, bolted into the bedrock, where you'd crank in the dock or let it out, depending on if the water levels were up or down. And so I would do that, and, and, then, um, and then I would get in the canoe and just go wherever I wanted to, which I wasn't allowed to do, kids, uh, don't take note of this. Um, <laughs> But I would always be freaked out if I flipped the canoe over, which are easy to flip over, of the murky waters. Um, remember swimming with friends around the boat dock, we'd have friends over and my my age friends, we'd swim, and we'd swim under the boat dock where the styrofoam blocks would hold the boat dock up or the barrels, and they'd be like, let's go underneath and go in between the styrofoam, and I'm like, yeah, okay, um, because it's really creepy under there, and most kids really enjoy the uh, uh, adrenaline, but I was one of those that didn't like it and never liked horror flicks and all of that, but uh, in order not to be made fun of, I would go under the boat dock and freak myself out. There were rumors in town how deep this lake is. It's 150 feet deep where our boat dock was out in the middle and down near where the dam was. It's about 300 feet deep. So it's a super deep lake. And uh, I remember in school, get saying, yeah, you know there's like catfish there as big around as telephone poles and about as long. And so, and they swallow people whole. <laughs> okay, that's cool. And uh, cause I live, I live right over on there. And then I remember, you know, people, it's so deep if people would drown, sometimes they would never resurface. And so there are several bodies in the bottom of that 30, three-mile-long lake, and I just have, have this, you know, phobia of things floating up under me that, that were human-esque. <laughs> right? you the imagination of a kid. I guarantee you, if I were to go back and swim in it today, I'd still have the same phobias. What are you afraid of? Those are some of my fears. I told you I have a fear of snakes and a fear of murky water. That would be my personal hell if I ended up having to live that kind of life, all right? It would not be a good one for me. We come to a place in scripture in Mark chapter six where we see Jesus saying these very words, do not be afraid. We come up on the scene of, of the disciples as they're rowing hard against wind and wa- the wind and the waves in, in the Sea of Galilee. Now several of our 12 disciples actually had been fishermen on this lake. That's, that was their trade, they did this for a living. And, uh, and obviously they'd seen storms pop up like this, but the problem was it wasn't during the day, it was at night. And of course they would fish at night cause there was good fishing at nighttime, but the wind and the waves were super hard. Now Jesus sees this from a hilltop, not too far away that they're really struggling hard against the wind and the waves, probably more than normally they'd struggle in situations like this. What had just happened prior to the circumstance where they find themselves on the lake? Well, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, actually just 5,000 men. We know that there were women and children there too. So there were more than 5,000 people there. How did he feed them? Do you remember? Fish and loaves, right? They found some little boy's lunch and they basically stole it from him because the disciples are bullies and Jesus multiplied it and gave him his food back plus the 5,000 plus people that were there. Okay, the disciples weren't bullies because if you walk away telling that, I'll deny it, all right? (laughs) They just weren't often that bright, all right? But Jesus takes what is brought to him, he multiplies it and does this miraculous thing and they walk away with 12 baskets full of this stuff. When all this kid had was a small little satchel of lunch. Now, Jesus tells the disciples, listen, I'm going to go off and pray and be with the father for a little while. I need to be with my dad. I want you guys to get in the boat and go across the lake to Bethsaida. And when you get there, wait for me. I'll meet you over there. So Jesus isn't with them. And later on that night, it says probably around three in the morning, it gets so bad on the lake or on the sea. That they're struggling hard, and Jesus sees this, and he gets moving from the place where he's been praying, and instead of what what is the uh, shortest point or shortest uh, distance between two points, a straight line. Guess what he does? He makes a straight line. He walks across the water to where they are, and it's intending to pass them by. In each of our gospel accounts. Now Mark's, doesn't, Mark's gospel account doesn't tell us about Peter jumping out on the water. That's Luke's account. But in Mark's account, he just tells us that Jesus comes walking on the water and is intent to pass them by. But so do the other disciples, or the other gospels. They say he's intent to pass them by. Why would he do that? Well, we'll talk about that. Let's pick this up today. Mark chapter 6, we're going to start with verse 45. And if you have a Bible, please turn there. It's good to know where this is. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible there. And if you can't find a pew Bible, worst case scenario, it's behind me. So Mark six, starting with verse 45, I'm reading from the New Living Testament. Immediately after this, what had just happened? feeding of the 5,000. So immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home, the 5,000-plus people. He said, guys, go on back home. After telling everybody goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. About three in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. He intended to go past them. I think this is interesting. Jesus is this masterful teacher. As every parent should be, um we want our kids to learn. And sometimes learning isn't just telling them information, it's actually having them experience certain things and seeing if they can figure the problem out, right? If if our kids can learn by figuring something out, they're more able to figure it out a second time, and a third, and a fourth, and they grow in this knowledge. But if we're always stepping in and fixing the problems for them, they don't often learn, do they? So Jesus is intending to pass them by, it says. But what happens next? But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. And again, I've, I've preached on this passage before, and oftentimes I'll go, they went, ah! like this. You know, I can just imagine these grown burly fishermen, tax collectors, zealots in this boat that Jesus says, come follow me. He's got the 12 there with him, even the one that would betray him, Judas Iscariot, and they get freaked out. They get scared to death because they think it's a ghost, which prompts me to ask the question, have they seen a ghost before? What would make them go to that conclusion? Or did they just believe in the fables and stories and tales that they had heard? Oh, this place is haunted. You don't want to go there. Or this part of the lake is haunted. You don't want to go there. What was it that they had grown up with that made them automatically go to this? But they see Jesus walking on the water. They don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost. And they were super terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once, what does he say? Don't be afraid, do not be afraid. Take courage, I am here. Now that's not the correct translation. And most of our Bibles don't have the correct translation of take courage, I am here. Because it doesn't sound right. And so to make it a little bit more palatable and, and user-friendly in the English, it's not a bad translation to say, "Take heart, I am here." But the actual Greek translation of this comes up multiple times throughout Scripture in the New Testament, and it is "ego, a me." Do you know what that word is? "I am." It doesn't mean "I am here. It means "I am." And so it's as if Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, take courage, I am. Where did we hear that before? Well, if we go all the way back to Exodus, where Moses is being called by God through a burning bush to go set the people free from Egypt in bondage and slavery. Moses is having this battle with God as many of us do whenever we feel a prompting by God, if you're a believer in Christ, sometimes you feel God prompting you to do certain things. Like you need to go talk to that person. You need to go say this thing. You need to apologize here. And we wrestle against God. No, I can't do that. Or I don't want to do it this way. Let me do it my way. And so Moses is having this, this battle or the struggle against God and God's saying, I want you to go do this. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to basically find somebody else. Well, uh, God says, all right, you can do that want you to do this uh, but still who, who who shall I say is sending me and what does God tell him I am tell them I am is sending you <laughs> what kind of an answer is that I am I am that I am God doesn't have a beginning he always has been God cannot be nailed down by a definition of an aim the way humans can God is, he always was and always will be. When I teach sixth and seventh grade Bible at Penn Christian Academy and we talk about this and it's come up in discussion, when did God come into existence, Pastor Brandon? He's always been. Well, how is that possible? With God, all things are possible. That's an easy out, right? But how is it possible? Because a human finite mind can't understand what I am really is. God is God. He is the ever, ever eternal being. He will have no end, he had no beginning, he always has been. And though it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, the reality and the truth of the fact that that is who he is doesn't change. And so when he's on the lake and they get scared and he calls out to them, don't be afraid. Take courage, I am. Do you know what he's telling them? See, their disciples, their Jewish disciples, they would have known the stories of the Old Testament. In that language, He spoke in Aramaic and I don't have the Aramaic translation, but in Aramaic, he would have called out in words familiar that they would have learned about God in the Old Testament. Take courage, I am. In that one instance, he's telling them something significant about who he is. Don't worry about the wind and the waves. I created those things. Don't worry about what you see me doing. I master and control the water that I walk upon. Don't worry, don't be afraid. I'm gonna take care of you. Don't be afraid, take courage. I am, and then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. Like that. It's almost as if he was giving them a little icing on the cake. Take courage, I am, sits down in the boat and it stops. Nobody says anything. They were totally amazed, Mark tells us. Totally amazed. That word right there we'll talk about in a minute. Amazed doesn't even touch what they were feeling in that moment. For they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. (laughs) They're they're pondering, they're rowing against the window, they're on their way across to Bethsaida before Jesus walks on the water, and they're like, hey, how did he do that? Where did, how did, what, how did... And they're doing that on the water. And then the wind and the waves come. My guess is they're now preoccupied against the wind and the waves. But then they see Jesus, Jesus comes walking. They think he's a ghost. They freak out and he says, don't worry, it's me. And then he gets in the boat and that stops. How do you make sense of all this? How would we have made sense of all that if we were one of the 12? Because it says, They were totally amazed because they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. And then Mark says their hearts were too hard to take it in. You see what fear does is it hardens us. What fear and worry and anxiety do is it hardens us to the realities of life instead of God being the one that we trust to lead us through the difficulties of life. The author of Hebrews remind us of something very important here too, and I want you to look really quickly with me at Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters, and don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without knowing it or without realizing it remember those in prison as if you were there yourself remember those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies I often wonder after I read that is if I were to know that I was in the presence of a holy angel of God what would my response be because every time like I mentioned earlier when a holy angel of God appeared in all of its regalness and glowing robes and might and power and people fall on their faces, terrified out of their wits. But have you ever thought that maybe you've entertained an angel unaware? What if we, would we change in how we responded to people? Would we actually fulfill the commandment to love God and love others differently if the people we encounter on a daily basis might be angels that we're encountering? You say, Well, I know some of them aren't angels, they cuss me out. (laughs) Or they flip me off on the roadway, or they shortchanged me at the cashier, you know, at the counter, or how many strangers have you encountered that maybe you didn't realize were angels? Here's a key point really quickly this morning is that fear keeps us from living a full life in Christ. Fear keeps us from living a full life in Christ. What were the disciples afraid of? The first thing they were afraid of is the wind and the waves. They were afraid of the wind and the waves. They'd been with Jesus for a short time up to this point. They trusted him enough to follow him, to leave their professions, to leave their families, and to go follow Jesus. To set out on these uh, journeys across the, the area of Galilee and Judea. And they start to see this guy, Jesus, doing these miraculous things. And he's teaching them along the way who he is. And he's revealing to them who he is and yet, even after miracle, and another miracle, and another miracle, I mean, even at the wedding of Canaan, the first miracle we have recorded that Jesus did, turning water into wine, how is that even possible? And they experienced these miracles up to this point, and it says their hearts were hardened. They, they, they were still struggling to, to, to take into account the feeding of the 5,000. How many times has God maybe allowed certain things in his created order to affect you so that it draws you closer to him? How many times has he brought you out of situations or made a way for you when everything seemed just utter chaos and you thought you were at the end of your rope? How many times has it happened where he's done that, but you've just chalked it up to coincidence, but he's saying, I've been right there with you, making a way for you even when you didn't ask me to at times? How many times have you been afraid and you've been paralyzed in your fear because you didn't know what else to do and so you just clammed up and stopped? How many times have you pulled the covers back up over your head when the alarm clock goes off in the morning because you didn't want to do the day because you were afraid and depressed and down and out? How many of you have checked out mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and maybe even physically because you've allowed fear to trap you and to tell you these lies that nothing's ever going to change. You're just going to have to live with the reality the way the world is, and it's not going to get any better. So you're just going to have to stay where you are and do what you've always done. When there is a great God who is greater than the realities of the world we live in, that is supernatural, that holds the keys to death and Hades in his hand, and that holds the keys to eternal life, to set us free from sin and death so that we can live life to the fullest. But yet we won't step into that because we're afraid Well, if I do, then that means I have to stop doing this or leave this behind or change this behavior. If I actually come to Christ and give myself up, what am I going to lose? It's more the question of what are you going to gain? But see, the disciples couldn't understand this at this point in the narrative. They saw this man doing amazing things that no other man in the world could ever do a man that could control nature just by speaking a word or not. All he has to do is sit down in a boat. And yet they were perplexed. All too often we find ourselves fighting against outside influences that storm and rage against us, and some of you that stepped into this place this morning have probably found yourself right now in a current situation where you are fighting and struggling and fighting and struggling, and it just feels like you're beating at the air, not making any progress, and you're scared to death. The only way that we're ever able to overcome the torrential battering is by being anchored to Christ on the inside, and some of us haven't realized that. Some of us say we do, some of us say we believe in Christ, but we've never fully put our trust in Him. It's just lip service. But Jesus isn't concerned about your lip service, He's concerned about what's in the heart. And what's in the heart is either what anchors you or what lets you get battered by the wind and the waves. And see, Jesus tells us this narrative too in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the wise man builds his house on the rock. Why? If he builds it on the rock rather than on the sand, when the wind and waves come, what's going to happen? He'll be able to withstand the battering of the wind and the waves if you're built on the rock. And he is the rock. But all too often, we find ourselves building on sand. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's easier. Maybe we think it's going to be just fine. Maybe we're lazy. Because to build on rock means we have to anchor ourselves in. To build on sand, we just put something on top of it. If you want to build on the rock, you you need a jackhammer, a drill that can bore through stone so you can anchor yourself to the rock. And it's too hard. It takes too much time. My dad always taught me, if you want to do a job, do it right the first time. Measure twice, cut once. Once. You know how many times I didn't follow that advice throughout life and building stuff. And I'm like, yep, that's it, zip. And I'm like, oh, I just wasted a board. I gotta go back to Lowe's or Home Depot and get another board. Why? Because in the foolishness of my own inability, I continue to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, and we call that insanity. But Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. He says, if you build on the rock rather than on the shifting sand, you're going to be able to withstand anything this world throws at you. But church, listen to me, the church in our culture is not withstanding the battering ram of the world right now. The church in other cultures is, and it's thriving and growing. The church in China, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, where they're under the biggest amount of pressure, they have locked themselves into the stone of Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders rejected has become their cornerstone And we put not, we put Jesus not as a cornerstone in our lives, in our culture. We just have him as a part of the edifice. Oh, he's in there with the rest of the stones. But see, the cornerstone is so important, isn't it? Because what does a cornerstone do? It sets up the alignment for the rest of the stonework. It's the one that you measure. I, I worked with a mason back in Ohio um, while I was working for the church. We were building an addition onto the church, and he was showing me that he takes the cornerstone. He's got to get it exactly level and exactly square because then he locks this little, uh, little piece onto it that has a twine that reaches all the way across to the other side so that when he puts every other stone down, every other block down, it's in alignment with that cornerstone because that cornerstone is perfectly aligned. He's the cornerstone. But in our lives, oftentimes, especially in the American church, he's just one of the other stones. And he can't be just one of the other stones. In other places, it says he's the capstone. The Romans gave us these beautiful archways and these arches. And the arch is one of the strongest uh, structures in, in, in the world. And you see these aqueducts that even run through Rome and Italy today where they have these huge arch structures. And on top of those arches are these aqueducts that used to bring water all over the place. The first real plumbing system the world had known up to that point. And the arch is strong because it holds everything together. And it says in Scripture that Jesus is the capstone What is Pennsylvania's main, uh, what are we? The keystone state. The keystone is the same thing as a capstone. Because what does the keystone do? It holds the other ones in place. It is that one top central piece in that arch that if you pull it out, what happens to the rest of the arch? It, it, It fails. So what do we do? Do we have him just as any other stone, or do we have him as a capstone? Do we have him as a cornerstone? Is he the foundation stone? See, all of these apply. The disciples were also afraid because of seeing what they thought was a ghost on the water. Again, I don't know what their histories were like up to that point. I don't know what they experienced in life. I don't know if they'd ever seen an apparition or not, or what they thought was one. But for whatever reason, they see a ghost. Now, <laughs> before we're too hard on them, if you were one of the 12 in the boat, what would you do? Have you, have, let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen anybody walk on water without CGI effects in the movies? <laughs> have you ever physically watched somebody literally walk on top of water? I, I, I didn't think so, because I haven't either. And and I'm guessing nobody else since that time that Jesus did it has ever seen that. The only other human that we ever know, that we ever know of that that did it was Peter. And in Luke's gospel, it says, Peter calls out to Jesus at this point where where, uh, Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter says, okay, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to come out to you. You know what's interesting about this? Is that Peter doesn't just jump out and start walking. He, has to, he wants to get permission first. Smart guy, at least in this instance. And, he, and Jesus says, well, get on out here. That's what it, where I'm from, Kentucky. That's how they would say it. And so he jumps over the side of the boat and he begins to walk. And the amazing thing is he's walking on the water. But what happens to Peter? What gets the best of him? Because if you've read the story before, or even if you've not been familiar with the church at all, you might be familiar with the story of Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking toward him and beginning to sink. Why did he begin to sink? He started looking around at the wind and the waves, and he started to get scared. This is before Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, and Peter's walking, and he gets scared. Why does he get scared? Maybe there's thunder and lightning. Maybe as a, what is that phobia I said earlier about the fear of thunder and lightning? Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the fear of water, hydrophobia. Or maybe it's the fear of the reality that he knows he's never done this before And he shouldn't be able to do it now. You ever stepped out in faith and had doubts? You stepped out in faith because Jesus says, come. And then you start to look around and you're like, "Who?" your insecurities might get the best of you. You start thinking, you start thinking to yourself, who am I? Who am I to think I could do this? Maybe I've made a huge mistake. G- Jesus, are you sure you called me to come out of here? are you sure you asked me to do this oh this is foolish what was i thinking because the wind and the waves had not stopped battering up against the boat and up against peter's legs and we struggle i think we struggle oftentimes when we know jesus has called us but the fear of the what ifs overrides our sensibilities and we get scared. You know what fear does is it paralyzes us to inaction. Fear doesn't motivate us, oftentimes fear paralyzes us. And Jesus calls us often to call out our fears, to face our fears, to have more trust in Him than the problems we're facing. You know why Jesus was going to pass them by? You want to hear my interpretation and thought on this? because I think he was wanting to see if they wanted him more than they wanted their current circumstance. Do you really want my help? It says he intended to pass them by. How often have you been caught in the middle of a horrible situation and you're trying to dig yourself out, dig yourself out, dig yourself out to no avail. You're working hard. And the boat's not going anywhere. And you feel like you're fighting a battle that's never gonna end. And Jesus is walking by and he's waiting on you to say, help, help. I can't do this alone. I've been working hard and it's not working. What I'm doing is not fixing the problem. And yet we stay focused on the problem and our fears continue to build and mount and we continue to focus on the problem, continue to sink beneath the wind and the waves. And Jesus is there and he's saying, listen, when are you going to call out? And he reaches down and he grabs Peter's hand and he says these words, oh, Peter, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt I said this in class this morning, and I'm gonna repeat it again. Who did Peter doubt? Did Peter doubt Jesus or himself? Because he trusted Jesus enough to get out of the boat. But then he started realizing the reality of where he was and that he, under no uncertain terms, has never been able to do this before. What makes him think he can do it now? And he starts to doubt in himself. And what Jesus has called us to is to live a life abundantly, and a life abundantly stays focused on him, which helps us to rise above the wind and the waves. It helps us to do things that are amazing. Jesus gives us the promise. He gave his disciples a promise. The things you've seen me do, guys and ladies— You will do even greater things than these, but yet we don't believe that because we don't believe in ourselves and the ability of Christ supernaturally working through us and so we stay afraid, we stay put, and the world around us rages and we wonder why it's getting worse. Because God's people stay silent. It's because God's people stay afraid, and when they stay afraid, the enemy has them where he wants them. He has the American church where he wants it. Why? Because he's wreaking havoc, and if he can keep us afraid of standing for the truth and standing for what's right and not walking on the water the way Christ just called us out to do in our culture, to risk everything, life and limb for his sake, then he's won the battle over our culture. He's won the battle over the souls of men and women in our backyards, because we're not willing to take a step of faith in the right direction because we're afraid. Church, it's not about getting people through the doors of a physical facility so that we can grow in numbers and grow our finances and build a bigger building It's about growing the kingdom of God. It's about making citizens of his kingdom rather than our own small little kingdom so we can make a name for ourselves. That happened in Genesis 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? It's about making a name for him. It's about stepping out in faith, risking it all, being willing to look foolish by the world's standards. Because God chose the foolish things that the world sees as foolish to shame those who think that they are wise. First Corinthians chapter 27, or verse 27. Chapter one, verse 27. Lastly, and I'll close with this. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' ability to control the wind and the waves. (laughs) This is interesting. Um, This idea of amazement is 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 this? They were extremely astounded. They were beside themselves. Have you ever been beside yourself? <laughs> like scared out of your wits? It's Halloween time. I'm not saying you should go to these horror places, but you probably are getting scared out of your wits, and you have an out of body experience, and you're stepping out, and you're seeing yourself and your life flash. This is the kind of thing they were experiencing. They were beside themselves, out of their wits. They were, one of the terms used, translated here, is they were bewitched. So here's the difference in the two fears here. They were afraid of the wind and the waves. They were hard hearted because they didn't realize who this guy was, even after he was doing these amazing things around them and and among them. And now they're amazed. See, Jesus calls them out for being afraid. Don't be afraid, I am. And then he gets in the boat, the wind stops, which causes the waves to stop. And I'm guessing, though I wasn't there and we aren't told, there's this eerie silence. Have you ever been outside on a clear day and the wind has completely stopped and there's no traffic coming by? and it's just quiet. We lived in Tornado Alley. I grew up in Kentucky, we lived in Ohio prior to coming here for eight years. And when tornadoes are about to come, sometimes it gets eerily quiet because not even the birds are chirping or the insects are making noise. We lived in Florida in Hurricane Alley for a while and the eye of the storm comes over, it's eerily quiet. And nobody dares say a word. But they're all thinking to themselves, who is this guy? And so their fear that had paralyzed them now turns to this fear of awe and wonder. They're still not sure who he is, but now they're reverently afraid of him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The author of Proverbs tells us. So you have this fear of this guy in the boat with them that they are just awestruck and amazed. There's a painting by Gabriel Max that's going to be on the overhead here. He's a 19th century Austrian painter that seems to illustrate the fearlessness of a believer in Christ, or at least what the fearlessness of a believer in Christ should be. The original painting is is, uh, in the famed museum called the Louvre in Paris. It's called The Last Token. This painting describes a scene in the days when to be a Christian meant persecution. It meant suffering and death. One of the Christians in the picture, a slender, beautiful maiden is about to be torn apart by the beast's in the arena, and at her side is this great stone wall of the amphitheater rising above her to the crowd above. This brutal multitude, desperate for a show. We can't see them, but she's looking up at them. The iron grating into the den of the beast has been lifted, and a ferocious tiger is enraged by captivity and hunger because that's what the Romans used to do they wouldn't feed these beasts for days we were told when we were at the Colosseum last year they would make them super hungry and then they would give them a little bit of a taste of blood and sometimes when they send their victims out to be mauled by these animals they would cut them or put clothes on them from a previous victim that had been mauled and so that that smell of blood would be on their bodies this tiger enraged by this captivity and hunger is stealthily creeping out of the cage toward his helpless victim with bloodlust in his eyes. This maiden, she's clad in white except for the dark mantle about her head and her shoulders and she stands only a few feet from the opening out of which the tiger's coming. But her mind is not on the beast, if you noticed in the picture. And it seems to be oblivious to how close it is to her and at her feet lies this white rose which some friend or lover or relative has thrown into the arena and her upturned and fearless eyes eagerly scan the benches above for the face of the one who has cast this rose to her the hate and the evil of man has condemned her to death and the savage beast is going to soon taste her blood but one single rose with One beating heart behind it has changed the whole scene. Now there are no beasts, no bloody sands, no jeering mob, only this white rose and this love triumphant. Perfect love, we are told by John, casts out fear. Dr. E. Stanley Jones writes, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not fear. Fear's not my native land, faith is. I'm so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil to life. I live better by faith and by confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air. But in faith and in confidence, I breathe freely. These are my native air. A John Hopkins University doctor says, we do not know why it is that warriors die sooner than non-worriers. And there have been scientific studies on this. But it is truly a fact. But I, who am simple of mind, know, I think, that we are inwardly constructed In nerve and in tissue and brain cell and in soul for faith, not for fear. God has made us this way. To live by worry is to live against the reality of who God is. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. So here's your homework for this week. I always give you a homework assignment. Last week it was to go somewhere in a public space, a park, a mall and sit and observe. To look around, to see evidence of God's love around you. You don't have to be in a physical building at a place we call church to see God moving. God is alive and well and works around us and we're often blind to it. That was your homework assignment for last week is to see is somebody helping somebody out with bags to the car, or somebody helping somebody across the street, or where did you see evidence of God this week? So this coming week, or this past week, this coming week, don't be foolish, (laughs) all right? But take somebody out for lunch that you don't know. Does that make you scared already? Take a complete stranger? Um, take somebody who's down and out on their luck. If you can't take them somewhere, bring food to them and ask permission to sit and eat with them. Get to know them, to know what makes them tick. You know they were created in God's image too. Take time maybe to visit a shut-in, somebody you don't know, We have a ton of shut-ins at our church that are unable to come to church. We'll give you a list. Spend an hour with somebody, breathing life into them. It probably will unnerve you to think, I'm going to somebody's house or to a nursing home and I'm scared to death. What am I gonna say? What am I gonna do? Allow God to use you. Maybe maybe it's visiting somebody in the hospital that you don't know. It's easier to visit people you do know. To visit people you don't know is a whole new ball game. Maybe you just go to the hospital and find a wing and go into a random room and say, "Can I pray with you?" How does that make you feel? Super stoked? No, because I see fear on some of your all's faces. It's like, are you serious? You want us to do? Yes. A few weeks ago, I preached we are salt and light. Isn't that what Jesus called us? We are to be the light of the world. We're to be the salt of the earth. Why uh, Should we be afraid? <laughs> do not be afraid. Because as you witnessed last week, if you actually seriously did the homework assignment, you probably witnessed that God is at work in the world around you, not just inside a physical building called a church and if he's out there where should we be you guys don't believe me if he's out there where should we be thank you at least a few of you got it that time i'm not preaching at you please understand this but if we're truly going to be a relevant church for our day and age at least let's just say maybe not nationally or internationally maybe just in Butler or Center Township, or Butler Township, if we're gonna be a relevant church with the gospel of Christ, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, what should we do? Go about our day ignoring everybody we don't know and only hanging out with those we do know whenever we feel like it because we're too concerned about what's on our phones or our media devices. And that's probably what some of you are thinking right now, aren't you? I don't have enough time for my own family. You want me to go visit a perfect stranger? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Well, you do it for—I do all the time, trust me. Because when I go into a hospital or a nursing home or when I'm on the street or whenever I'm in the public eye, my kids always ask me, do you know that person? i believe, nope. (laughs) Why'd you talk to—they used to ask me that all the time. I love people because God loves people. I I just want to be able to be light and salt in some small way. Can you imagine what 300 plus people could do from North Maine if we took seriously to be light and salt? Just just not to preach, not to take your bible, not to hand them a tract, but just eat with them, take them a coffee, sit with them, listen to them, and speak life into them. As our worship team comes forward today, let's pray. Father, you called us to be not afraid. But some of us don't know how to do that. Because we've lived in fear, we lived with fear and anxiety our whole lives. And to live a life without fear would be foreign to us. But God, remind us to live life without fear is to live life abundant, to live life of freedom. As we mentioned and talked about last week, Jesus, we know you said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you have come that we might have life and have it to the full. Help us to step out in faith to abandon our anxieties and fear, and to look at the possibilities of what you have before us. Help us to build on the rock. Help us, God, to not be foolish by your standards, but help us to risk being foolish by the world's standards. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.